All right, ladies, we're going to go ahead and start because I'm already going to have to talk at light speed to hopefully finish what we have. I have the announcement that next week is a fellowship, and so you'll sign up for that in small groups. So if you're listening online, um, call your small group leader to get signed up, right? Okay, that's good then. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for being great and awesome and holy and just and full of mercy and compassion and grace for providing the only possible way for us to be reconciled to you, to give us new hearts, to make us new, and then to place us in the body of your Son. Thank you so much for everything that you have provided for us to be here together. Thank you for this facility, the leaders of this church who just so generously share what you have given them. Thank you for those who are caring for the children. Thank you for um, even all the husbands who are working um, so that we can be with our children and we can be here together. Father, I pray that as your word goes out today, it would be glorifying to you. Lord, help each of us listen and focus and to hear as those who are wise, to hear in a way so that we grow closer to you. So your church is built up. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm excited to be here with you this morning. It's um, just a real blessing to actually see your faces, because I think of you often as we're working on lessons together, but now I know who you really are. And that's just a blessing to be here with you. Um, well, on Saturday, you know I normally teach on Saturday, probably just like you usually do. You start with your notebook. So pull out your notebook, look at the back of your notebook, Every week we start here, and we could start to just zone out when we hear this because you've already had a busy morning and you're probably just settling down, the heart rate is dropping, you've got the kids parked in their classes, but I really love how the purpose ties together the disciplines. It shows the connection between them, and so we're going to just talk about the disciplines as we go through the purpose, and so just really, really focus in and listen to this because I think it's really helpful to remember why we care about each one of these pieces. So the Wellspring purpose is to equip and encourage the Women of Grace Bible Church. That's us. That's us. And you know, it's just very humbling to stop for a minute and to think that we serve a God who would be pleased to save us into his body and to place elders over us who want to equip and encourage us. And then our purpose talks about what it is they want to equip and encourage us to do. And that is to shepherd our hearts toward Jesus Christ through God's word. That's discipline one. And the idea here is not to be consumed off by ourselves with our own little heart, but the idea is to bring our hearts before the Lord with his word through daily meeting with him. See, that's the only safe place to examine our hearts. That's the only place where our hearts are going to be transformed is bringing them in to before God's word to meet with the Lord. Um, and that is why discipline one is worth fighting for. I mean, it's a challenge. Sometimes it's an uphill battle. But we, if we do everything we can to keep God's word in front of us throughout the day, to fight for that time alone with him and fight to keep it in front of us and filling our heart and filling our mind and filling our words throughout the day. 
And then even asking others, how, how can I do this better? I'm, I'm struggling. Can you help me? Well, how can I manage my time differently? How, how can my, I manage my responsibilities differently so that discipline one can have its highest possible priority? Because all the other disciplines rest on that. And then why do we shepherd our hearts toward Jesus Christ with the word? Well, our purpose tells us it's so that we live out the gospel. That's the result of spending that time with the Lord. Um, The gospel transforms us, and then consequently it transforms how we live. Um, It transforms how we think and how we speak, how we respond, how we serve, so that those in our home first, right, that's discipline two, Um, And then beyond that, at work and at school and wherever we go so that everyone else can see and hear the effect that that gospel has had on us personally. And the result of that is how our purpose concludes. And that is thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. Now, I find that to be really motivating. Because, see, if I think that shepherding my heart is just about me, or it's just as big as my little world and where I go and who I know, then I can be sinfully content with a half-hearted pursuit of Christ. But when we remember that God has placed us in the body of Christ and that we are all members of it and that God's means for displaying the fullness of Christ is that we would be building up one another in the faith, then we realize how serious it is for us to take discipline one and discipline two seriously and to be diligent in our walk with Christ. See, when we are careless with discipline one and discipline two, the church feels the impact of that. So on your notebook, under the purpose, you see the disciplines. And the disciplines really break down how we go about fulfilling that purpose. And we spent most of the fall talking about the heart. And now within the last month, we moved on to talking about the home. And that's where we pick up today is with discipline two. And we're going to have a lesson on Proverbs 14.1, which says, The wise woman builds her house, but the foolish tears it down with her own hands. And by the time we're done today, we should be convinced, if we're not already, that living out the gospel in our homes has to be built on shepherding our hearts, which is why we spent so much time on Discipline One to begin with. So we'll begin by walking through the verse word by word and just seeing what else Proverbs has to say about it. And if you were at women's ministry back last spring, we taught on this verse. Um, A lot of this will be familiar, but it's really been impactful for me just to dive back into it and study it again. And so I trust that there'll be things that are fresh for you as well. Um, And then as we break it down word by word, we'll see some repeated themes. And then that will give us some uh, tools for gaining a clear understanding of what the verse means and then how we actually can apply it, how they can be tools for helping us live out the gospel in our own homes so that our homes are built up. So to get started, let's just think literally about what this verse says for a minute. It starts off by saying, the wise woman builds her house. So what does that look like? Where would a woman have to be if she's going to be busy building her house? She 
you have to be in her house, right? You can't build a house unless you're there. Now, how do you go about building a house? I've never built a house, but I would imagine it would take a lot of planning, right? A lot of uh, saving, a lot of work. You've got to know what you're doing before you get started. You've got to know where the door is going to be and the windows. Probably some sacrifice, planning, cooperation, perseverance. I mean, it's a lot of work to build a house. But what is the purpose? Why is she doing this? Why do people build houses? Because you need a place to live, right? What do you do where you live? You have protection, provision, fellowship, nurture, instruction. A lot of important things happen in a household. It's an important place for the people who live there. But then we have a different kind of woman in the second part of our verse. The second part of our verse says, The foolish tears it down with their own hands. So this woman is also in her house, but she's not building. She's tearing down. And how is she doing that? With her own hands. Now, how would you do that? Just think about that. If you at home wanted to tear down your house, would you pick the mortar out from between the bricks bit by bit? Fingers are all torn up. Or bust through a window with your fist? I mean, it's just really... You have to imagine it would be quite a painful task, a slow task, an insidious task. And the result is that rather than a house being built up, it's torn down. All the things that a home is supposed to provide for the people who live there are gone. It's not a place of safety, protection, provision, nurture, hospitality. It's gone. So I find those to be pretty vivid illustrations, pretty sobering. But I want you just to hold those pictures in your mind for a minute because we're going to step back and just take a little bit broader look at Proverbs to make sure we understand how to approach Proverbs correctly. So first of all, let's talk about where the book of Proverbs came from. We know from 1 Kings 3 that God appeared to Solomon in a dream and God asked Solomon what he wished for God to give him. And Solomon asked for an understanding heart so he could lead the nation. And in 1 Kings 4, it tells us that God gave Solomon wisdom and very great discernment and breadth of mind like the sand that's on the seashore. And Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the sons of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt, for he was wiser than all men. And he also spoke 3,000 proverbs. And a portion of those are preserved for us in the book of Proverbs. So Proverbs is a book of wisdom. It examines all kinds of situations in life, and it evaluates, is this wise or is this foolish? So what do we do with that? Does that have anything to do with Jesus? Does that have anything to do with the gospel? Well, Proverbs offers some practical help for fools, such as parental discipline, but only one true cure for their foolishness. Proverbs makes it clear that the fool's only ultimate hope is for God, who's the eternal possessor of wisdom, Proverbs tells us that, is for that God to make him wise. And when God does that, the fool is cured of his foolishness. His affections, his desires, his thinking, and his living are all transformed. Now that is what God revealed through Solomon. But God has continued to unfold his redemptive plan. And so now, as those who live after the cross, we have the benefit of more revelation. 
And we find in 1 Corinthians 1 that although the message of the cross is foolishness to fools, to those who are perishing, it is in fact the power of God for salvation. Christ is the wisdom of God, and he has become for the believer wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. I think you have that verse there in your notes. So when we see the fool in Proverbs, we need to think this is one whose only ultimate hope is to cry out to God for wisdom. And because we live after the cross, we know that God's wisdom has been more completely displayed in the gospel. So that means that as Proverbs exposes wisdom in our lives, we look at that and we see that that is evidence that God's grace has been at work in us, that there is fruit of being transformed by the gospel, by what Christ has done. And when we see foolishness in our lives, we look to God's grace in the gospel for the power to turn from that foolishness and to walk in newness of life and to grow in wisdom. And then there's one more helpful principle from Proverbs that I think would be helpful to cover before we actually jump into the verse. And this is just an aside. Um, We use the same notes on Saturday that you all know. You guys have probably been down this road before. And it just kills me to leave anything out. So you guys have everything that I'm going to use on Saturday, but you're going to see some places where things just get skipped, and I'm sorry about that. But the other thing I just want to talk about for a second is what is a proverb? Well, a proverb is a short saying which gives insight into life and human behavior. But a proverb is not a prophecy. A proverb is not a promise, and it's not an absolute doctrine. So, for example, Proverbs 16:7 says that when a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies live at peace with him. And that is true, generally speaking. However, we know that Jesus' ways were always pleasing to God the Father, and yet his enemies did not live at peace with him. Now, that doesn't mean that Proverbs is wrong. It just means that it's a proverb. It's a general insight into life. Is that helpful? I hope. Okay. So, with that, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Proverbs 14.1. Um, and just a, a note on the notes, you'll see that these are a bit different than what you normally get, and it's because I just like drinking out of a fire hose. Um, there's so much that Proverbs has to say about each um, aspect of this verse, and I think there is, that it's helpful to actually see them all next to each other. We won't read every one of them together, but I hope even as we go through them, just, just the weight of, of how often it talks about being contentious or how often it talks about being a sluggard, uh, that there's just a weightiness to seeing all those together, and then maybe it will be a tool for you as you go back and study these more. Okay, so Proverbs 14.1. So we want to be women who build up our homes, right? We want to be wise. So let's start by looking at what does Proverbs have to say about wise women and foolish women. Or to broaden it a bit, we can just say, what does it have to say about good women in general and bad women in general? So if you take a look at what it has to say about good women, you see that good women are described as gracious, prudent, excellent, that they fear the Lord. And if we want to go a little deeper, we can look and see what Proverbs says about being wise because we're looking at a wise woman. Now, you certainly could go 
deeper than, than what I did with just looking at the word wisdom, but I just took all the places where wise occurs in Proverbs and printed them all out. And I was actually really surprised that although it talks about a lot of things, the whole book of Proverbs was about being wise, there were two big umbrellas that covered a majority of what it says about being wise. Um, and the first, the first one of those umbrellas described how the wise woman hears. And so that would be your first blank. You could say how she listens or that she's teachable. Proverbs describes the, describes the wise person as one who is teachable, that she has an eagerness to receive instruction and learning as well as rebuke and discipline. And you've got lots of verses that describe that in your notes there. I'm going to let you look at those later on your own. But it doesn't matter what the nature of the instruction is. It can be wisdom, teaching, correction, commands, reproof, discipline. The one who is wise sees the value in those. She's receptive. Now, the second umbrella that covers a lot of what Proverbs has to say about being wise is how we speak. And it's summarized well with Proverbs 16.23 that says the heart of the wise instructs his mouth, which points us again back to discipline one. So again, you have the verses there in front of you. Um, You can see from Luke that Jesus made the same point. And all these verses, again, show that one who is wise must guard her heart well so that what comes out of her mouth is thoughtful, helpful, protective, instructive, and winsome, even when she's giving a reproof or correction. So those are two key aspects to being wise, how we listen and how we speak. Now, what can we learn from looking at the bad women in Proverbs? Well, it turns out that there are two kinds of bad women who show up over and over again. The first is the immoral woman, and you see lots of references there. Proverbs 2, 5, 6, 7, 22, 23, 30, over and over again. And that's, you have a blank for that. Let's see, the immoral woman, or you could call her the adulteress or the harlot, whichever word you like best. And then almost as often, your next blank is the contentious woman. And again, over and over and over again, there are warnings against being contentious. The wisest man in the world, Solomon, under inspiration from the Holy Spirit, made his top two warnings for women to be against sexual morality and being contentious. So these are a big deal. They're mentioned over and over again. So if we want to summarize just what we've seen so far about women in Proverbs, you've got it there in your notes, I believe. Wise women are teachable and they speak carefully, but women are warned against being immoral or contentious. Now that's important to know if we're going to be women who build up our homes instead of tearing them down. Now the verse has another contrast, not just wise and foolish women, but it's what they're doing. We have one who's building and one who's tearing down. So if we take a look at what Proverbs has to say about that, as for building, the repeated thought is wisdom. By wisdom, a house is built, which just really underscores what Proverbs 14.1 says. And then um, as for tearing down, there's a verse in Proverbs 11 that said a city is torn down by the mouth of the wicked. And that's a contrast with what we saw about wisdom, where words are to be instructive and helpful 
And then Proverbs 24 talks about tearing down uh, when referring to the broken down wall, the sluggard. That word for broken down is the same as tearing down. So to summarize what we see about building and tearing down, we can say wisdom builds, but a wicked mouth and idleness tear down. So the next thing in Proverbs 14.1 is houses. On the positive side, when wisdom is associated with the house, we see, for example, in chapter 9, and again, you should have that printed in your notes, that the house is built, food is prepared, the table is set, understanding is offered. You see both practical service and shepherding care. When we look at the Proverbs 31 woman, the excellent wife, we find this is a woman who gives food to her household. She's not afraid of snow for her household because she has clothed them. And we see a woman who looks well to the ways of her household and doesn't eat the bread of idleness. So we're starting to see some overlap with what we've already seen. We see industriousness and service instead of idleness. We see understanding rather than contention. Now, when we look at the negative side of houses, what's really interesting is that there are two repeated traits that emerge, and they're the very same traits that we saw when we looked at the bad women, sexual morality and contentiousness. Uh, Proverbs 9 is one interesting example of that. It's talking about the woman of folly, a foolish woman, and we find her sitting, being idle, at the doorway of her house, trying to seduce those who pass by. So there are just these repeated associations between a woman and her household and her work ethic and her purity. Now, as I mentioned, contentiousness is also a repeated warning for the home. You can see those verses there on your outline. So if we want to summarize what Proverbs has to say about houses, we can say homes are blessed by industrious women who care for the needs of their households and speak words of understanding but homes are harmed by idleness, indifference to the needs of others, by immorality, and by contentiousness. So that finally then brings us to hands and how it is that a foolish woman tears down her house. So again, we're going to just take a quick 50-meter, 50-yard dash or whatever, a dash, a quick dash through Proverbs and see what Proverbs has to tell us about hands. What is it that wise hands do? And what is it that foolish hands do? Now, interestingly, almost every single proverb that talks about hands refers to the same thing. And we see it in Proverbs 10, verse 4. Poor is he who works with a negligent hand, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Over and over again, there are references to laziness, folding of the hands to rest, slack hand. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. His hand refuses to work. Or we see the opposite, diligent hands, hands that gather, hands stretched out to work, hands extended to help the poor and the needy. So that underscores, again, the warning we've seen against idleness. We first saw that when we looked at tearing down and the broken down wall of the sluggard. But now we look at hands, it's just everywhere. So if we want to summarize what Proverbs tells us about hands, we could say wise hands work and serve, foolish hands don't. So now we have a lot more to build on in understanding Proverbs 14.1 when it says the wise woman builds her house, but the foolish tears it down with her own hands. And as we've broken it down, if we pull all these together, three warnings have repeatedly come forth. And those are warnings against sexual morality, idleness, and contentiousness. 
Now, all three of these warnings are repeated in the New Testament. Titus 2, 3 through 5, teaches that the opposite of these, being pure, workers at home, being kind, are among the primary ways that women protect the reputation of God's word. So these are serious warnings, and we need to understand what they mean and how to heed them. But we also need to remember our hope. So turn to 1 Peter chapter 2 with me. See, if I look at this list of warnings, they have my name all over them. I sin badly. I'm guilty on all accounts. And maybe you feel the same way. And if we stop there, we will just be crippled spiritually. So let's take just a minute to remind ourselves of our hope in the gospel. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. You were forgiven. You were cleansed. You were made new. So as these warnings expose sin in our lives, now or in the past, we repent. We turn away from that sin and we turn to Jesus. We confess it and we believe God's word. Where it says in 1 John 1, 9 that if we confess that sin, he is faithful to forgive us that sin and to purify us from that unrighteousness. We must believe the completeness of Christ's work on the cross, that it's actually so big and so powerful and so complete that it removes condemnation for those who have turned to Christ in repentance and faith. And those are words of hope. We need, we need to keep that hope in front of us as we look at verses that might expose sin in our lives. Um, okay, so with that, go ahead and turn over to Matthew 5. We're going to take a look at our first warning. Now, on some level, it might seem funny to talk about sexual immorality to a bunch of women who come to Bible study, who go to the trouble of getting their kids ready and come to church. Um, but God took a lot of space in his word to talk about this. And if he takes it seriously, then we need to take it seriously as well. Sexual immorality among women tears down houses. Now, you might have just thought, well, I don't do that. You know, I'm not committing adultery. I'm not fornicating. And you know, that's good. That is protecting your home. But Jesus doesn't let us get off the hook with just that. He goes deeper and he looks at the heart. So let's look at Matthew 5, verse 27. You've heard that it was said, this is Jesus speaking, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. According to Jesus, we can commit adultery in our heart before we ever sin physically. Now, let's say we sinfully allow ourselves to have a grumbling, critical attitude towards our husband. Now, if we do, we may be tempted to admire someone else's husband. Because, you know, he's just such a gentleman, and he's just such a good dad, and he's thoughtful, and he holds the door. Or maybe he just has some quality that our husband doesn't have. We may be easily flattered by men at work or at school, and we might find ourselves mulling over their compliments or the comments they've made in our minds rather than taking those thoughts captive and thinking thoughts that please the Lord, thoughts that are pure, thoughts that are lovely, thoughts that you could share with your husband. And there's the same danger for single women. 
Being discontent with our circumstances can lead down a path of thinking that a man is what we need to make us happy. And that can be a temptation to compromise our purity in order to get what we think we need. Now these are just, these can be the first steps toward immorality and it starts with a discontented heart being focused on a desire for a different set of circumstances to the extent that we are not willing to trust God with the circumstances that he has put us in. Now turn to Psalm 73. This is not just about whether or not we're having sex with a man we're not married to. It's first and most about whether, our, whether or not our affections are for Christ. Are we seeking, seeking our satisfaction in him alone? And I really enjoy, I just am so encouraged and ministered to by the way the psalmist expressed his desire for God in Psalm 73 beginning in verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And besides thee I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from me will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Now how is that lived out? Well, for one, it's going to influence how we dress. Now, why did God design clothes? Where do, where do clothes first show up in the word? Thank you. Genesis 3, right? Now, were they designed to cover or to expose? They were covering, right? They were not designed to draw attention. They were designed to cover the shame of our nakedness that was exposed by sin. But you might not know that to look at the world around us. Uh, We live in a raunchy culture, and since we are immersed in a world that approves of provocative dress, um, there are seductive images and entertainment just all around us, there's just this danger of being desensitized to it. Um, Sometimes what the culture says is fashion um, can be be indecent, not necessarily all fashion, but, but sometimes a lot of it. And even if we don't buy into immodest styles, I will tell you, it is really easy to be sucked in by the vanity behind it. How we dress is not first and most about our style. It's not about our preference. It's not about what others think. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.31 that whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So that means we need to dress for the glory of God. Uh, Not so frumpy that it puts others off, and not so done up that it attracts all kinds of attention, but dress in a way that's appropriate, so it doesn't draw attention to ourselves by what we're wearing or not wearing. Now, sometimes we as women can have a hard time getting the struggle that many men have for pure thoughts, but we, we need to remember that many men are very visual. And once they see something, the image of that can be very hard for them to get out of their minds. Um, and it can be very hard for them not to think of that image in a sensual way. So we need to dress and act and speak in a way that makes it easy for the men in our life to be pure when they're around us. That doesn't put our brothers in Christ in a constant battle for purity with their eyes and their minds. 
Um, and so that's one way that it's going to look in our lives when our affections are first and most for our Savior. Now, another place to examine our purity, then, is in our entertainment, maybe movies, TV, books. Um, even sometimes uh, it can be things that are Christian, Christian romance or something. Now, we need to ask ourselves, what does our entertainment leave us thinking about? What does it leave us desiring? Does it cultivate contentment? Or does it cultivate discontentment? Does it guard the purity of our thoughts? What does it put in our thoughts, say, when we're falling asleep at night? Are there things going through our minds that, that shock us? Now, this is my conviction. That it's not guarding the purity of our thoughts and affections when we imagine or read or watch interactions designed only for a husband to enjoy with his wife. See, I only want to have those images and thoughts and feelings for my own husband. I don't think there's any other way that I can say I'm reverencing my husband if I don't even save my imagination for him. Now, romance entertainment can also plant seeds of discontentment. So again, we're tempted to compare real life with the imaginary. It's kind of hard to compete with the imaginary. And that just makes us more vulnerable to the temptations of um, friendships and bonds with men that aren't going to help us, that don't lead anywhere good. Now, purity is an act of worship towards God. It's a display of our trust in him. It's a confidence in his overabundant sufficiency for every need we have. It's placing our affections first and most on Jesus Christ. So we build our homes by guarding and cultivating our affections for Christ and cultivating only pure thinking and desires and interactions with men. Now, for each of these warnings, you'll see a scripture that's for heart shepherding on the outline. For the warning against immorality, 1 Corinthians 6, 18-20 is really helpful. You might want to memorize it or even just review it regularly to help keep the gospel's call to purity in front of you. It says, flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price, the price of Jesus' blood. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Now that brings us to the second warning, which is idleness. And if we want to examine that on a heart level, we can ask ourselves, whom do we serve? Now, Proverbs shows us that one of the things that tears down a house is idleness. So what is idleness? Well, it can certainly be flat-out laziness, just not working and avoiding work. But does that necessarily mean that if we're busy, we're not idle? Now, C.J. Mahaney writes this on his blog, and he just says it better than anything else I've read. He says, lazy? Not me. I'm busy. I'm up early. I'm up late. My schedule's filled from beginning to end. I love what I do, and I love getting stuff done. I attack a daily to-do list with the same intensity I play basketball. Me lazy? I don't think so. Or at least I didn't think so. That is, until I read about the difference between busyness and fruitfulness and realized just how often my busyness was an expression of laziness, not diligence. I forget now who first brought these points to my attention, but the realization that I could be simultaneously busy and lazy, that I could be a hectic sluggard, 
that my busyness with no immunity from laziness became a life-altering and work-altering insight. What I learned is that busyness does not mean that I'm diligent, it does not mean that I am faithful, and it does not mean that I'm fruitful. Recognizing the sin of procrastination and broadening the definition to include busyness has made a significant alteration in my life. The sluggard can be busy. Busy neglecting the most important work. And busy knocking out a to-do list filled with tasks of secondary importance. Now, when considering our schedules, we have endless options, but there are a few clear priorities and projects derived from our God-assigned roles that should occupy the majority of our time during a given week. And there are thousands of tasks of secondary importance that tempt us to devote a disproportionate amount of time to completing an endless to-do list. And if we are lazy, we will neglect important for the urgent. That's the end of what he wrote. Now, this kind of idleness can be kind of tricky to identify because we might be busy doing things that really aren't sinful at all in and of themselves. But if we're not being diligent with our primary responsibilities, think about discipline one, discipline two, discipline three, then we need to examine our heart for idleness. We may be choosing to do what we want rather than what's hard. We may be neglecting responsibilities or relationships. Now, the other side of this is understanding that being diligent doesn't mean we never rest. Rest is from the Lord. He gives us, he richly supplies all things for us to enjoy. You have those verses in your notes. Being diligent doesn't mean that we never have any entertainment, that we never relax. Um, It doesn't mean that we can use diligence as an excuse for being a slave of our home and for making our families slaves of our home, caring more about how things look and what people think than serving the Lord and serving the people that he's put in our lives. That's why we need to remember our heart and ask ourselves, whom am I serving? Sometimes we serve the people we live with best by sitting down and just spending time with them. And we are most available to do that when we have been thankful, joyful, diligent stewards of the time that God has given us throughout our day. Now you can see there that the scripture for heart shepherding in the area of diligence is Colossians 3. And that was written specifically to believers who were actually enslaved. They were considered a piece of property by somebody else who owned them. But if slaves are exhorted to live this way, how much more can we gain encouragement to serve Christ with our labors? It says, Slaves in all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, pleasing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. So when we use God's word to shepherd our hearts into biblical thinking about our work, then we will find ourselves seeking him throughout our day, saying, Lord, how can I best serve you right now? And seeking his wisdom for our planning and our schedules remembering that we are his stewards. We're not our own. And then our third warning is against contentiousness. And we can get to the heart of this warning by asking the question, whom do we trust? 
Uh, we're going to skip over the references to Exodus and Numbers, but if you particularly struggle with contentiousness, I really encourage you to go back and struggle those, uh, study those chapters. It definitely is a place that God has worked on my heart a lot. Um, but what does it mean to be contentious? Well, the definition says that it means that you're given to angry debate. It can be quarrelsome. It can also be translated as strife or discord. Proverbs addresses a contentious woman in particular five separate times. Now, I apologize that I didn't, it was my oversight, I didn't put the references for these Proverbs that I'm going to share with you in your notes But at this point, but you might have them earlier in your notes. And if you have any questions, let me know. I can give you the references. But twice it says that the nagging woman is like a constant dripping. Twice it says it's better to live in a corner of a roof, and once it's better to live in a desert than to live with a contentious woman. Now, just think about those comparisons. Do we really think it's that bad? If we're having a bad day and we're feeling a little contentious, do we tell our family, you know, why don't you just go live in the desert today? You'd be better off there. (laughs) You know, I don't usually take it quite that seriously. Just go live on the roof, kids. But that's what God's word says. Proverbs also reveals that contention is stirred up by anger, by arrogance, and by gossip. So, what does contention look like? Well, it can be nagging. It can be that you just don't let something go, being quick to speak and slow to listen. Or maybe we find ourselves holding our tongue but harboring contentious thoughts and attitudes. Many times we fall into being contentious because we're just not being careful. Now, what would be the opposite of contentious? Well, remember what we learned about being wise. We saw two qualities that are essential to overcoming contentiousness. We saw first that the wise are teachable. They're very careful with how they listen. Uh, They have an eagerness to receive instruction and learning as well as rebuke and discipline. And then secondly, we learned that the wise woman guards her heart so that her words are thoughtful and helpful and protective instructive and winsome. Winsome. Don't you love that word? Her words are winsome, even when she needs to give a rebuke. So if we're being careful how we listen and careful with how we speak, those are the opposite of being contentious. Now, thankfully, we have the riches of God's word, which supplies all the wisdom we need to flee contention, beginning with our hearts. In Genesis 2, Eve was created to be Adam's helper. So we can ask ourselves, are my words helpful with what I'm saying, how I'm saying it, when I'm saying it, maybe to whom I'm saying it? Interestingly, in Proverbs, many of the instances of strife and contention are in the context of people stirring up contention among others. So when we have a concern or a complaint or a need, there is a right way to deal with that, and that includes going to the right person, and only the right person. Proverbs 15, 23, and 28 include these wise words. How delightful is a timely word. And it says the heart of the righteous ponders how to answer. So we can ask ourselves, is this the right time to speak? Have I pondered my answer? Sometimes when we ponder, we may realize that our words aren't really needed at all. We can also look at the Proverbs 31 woman. She does her husband good and not harm. She opens her mouth in wisdom and the teaching of kindness 
is on her tongue. So we can ask ourselves, is this good and beneficial for those I live with, for my husband, my children, my roommates? Will it bring harm? Is it wise? Does it promote understanding? Again, not only with what I say, but when, how, to whom I say it. Go ahead and turn over to Matthew 5. We were there earlier. Read with me in Matthew 5, 23 and 24. And again, these are Jesus' words. And he says, If therefore you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go your way. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Now, so the, I'm sorry, the wise woman who builds up her house will make a priority of reconciling relationships, of confessing sin, and seeking forgiveness. Look at the priority it has in these verses we just read. Jesus was speaking to Jews before the cross when there was still a temple standing in Jerusalem where people would go and make offerings and sacrifices. And he says, even if you're there in the temple and you're all set, you're all ready to make your offering, and right then you remember like, oh my goodness, that person has something against me. I need to go seek their forgiveness. You need to drop what you're doing and go make things right before you go on with your offering. And this is also something that we need to be, just come to terms with the fact that we're going to need to do it over and over again. It really needs to become a habit of our life. And as it does, it actually becomes something that you can look forward to because it's God's means for bringing restoration and restoring peace in your home. We don't want to wait till it's just something big. If we even suspect that maybe that tone we used could have been a stumbling block or that our manner or our timing was exasperating to somebody, you know, ask. Find out. And then if it's clear that you've sinned, seek forgiveness. Confess it. Don't just say, I'm sorry. Ask, please forgive me. And then go ahead and turn the page over to Matthew 7, verse 3. Why do you look at the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye, and behold, this log is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So we need to ask ourselves, have I preached the gospel to myself first? Am I more concerned with somebody else's sin than I am with my own? See, our sinfulness can pop out not only in what we say and what we do, but also in how we respond to someone else's sin. And their sin never excuses ours. We need to ask ourselves, is my own sin causing me to assume the worst about somebody else? Maybe I'm assuming that they're in sin. Well, maybe they're not. I need to go find out. See, if um, sometimes I, my sin could tempt me to assign motive that's not really there or to assume the worst. Or am I going to them with grace because I'm eager for restoration, restoration to godly character and restoration of relationships so that God is the one who's glorified and that Christ is displayed so the church is strengthened. Now, you'll notice with all these principles for wise biblical communication, there's no impulsiveness. There's no venting. There's no carelessness. There's no just wanting to tell you what I really think. 
There's no stewing or preparing speeches. You know what we'd say if we just really got the chance? We didn't think they'd get mad if we said it. See, if we're to be wise women who build up our homes, then we will not be quick to speak. We will think things over in light of God's word. We'll pray about them. We'll examine ourselves, repent of sin, sinful attitudes, sinful responses, and then go to another, one another with that heart full of grace, ready to confess our sin and seek, restor- seek reconciliation and unity. When we are wise with our words, we are placing our trust in God confident in his faithfulness to work for his glory and our good as we obey him. So I've put down there my two favorite scriptures for fighting this sin. And I will tell you, these cover a lot of different situations. The first one I've learned from 1 Corinthians 13:7 that tells us that love always hopes. And the principle that I've gotten from that is to make charitable assumptions, not to assume the worst. And then the second one is from 1 Timothy 1.15. And that, the principle that that verse gives me is to not underestimate my own sinfulness. Um, if I'm in the middle of a situation where somebody else has, is sinning, or many times just that they're doing something I don't like or I don't understand, if right then and there, the first thought that goes through my mind is, I'm every, every bit as much a sinner as they are. Every bit as much. No, actually, Scripture would tell me more. Okay, I'm going to believe Scripture. I'm a bigger sinner than they are right now. Even though I think they're the bigger sinner, I know I'm the bigger sinner. I'll tell you what, that just changes everything about what comes out of your mouth if you have that truth right there in front of you. So, um, in conclusion, as we seek to be wise women who build our homes, we've seen it always comes back to our heart, haven't we? All of these are issues of our heart. And we must keep God's grace always in view. See, the grace that has brought us salvation is the same grace that instructs us to deny ungodliness and to live righteously. We look to what Christ has done on the cross, that he finished the work of salvation for us there. Proverbs shows us how desperately we need Christ, who has become for us wisdom from God. So let us be women whose affections are for Christ, whose service is for Christ, and who trust in Christ, who is our Savior and our King, so that our homes might be built up to the glory of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that your word is so rich. Lord, there is no plumbing the depths of the treasure that you have given us. And Lord, it's all true and it's all powerful to instruct us and transform us. Father, I pray, Lord, we have just, we've covered a lot, and I pray that you would help each one of us to see clearly what part of this you want us to spend more time on, Lord, to meditate on, to think about, to come before you and ask you to have, let your work do, its your word to do its penetrating work of examining our hearts so that we might know you better and display your son better. I pray, Father, for your blessing on the discussion groups, that the the conversations and the discussions would be vibrant and encouraging and rich, and that they would build up this body and spur each woman on in her walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen.